Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with another episode of The Yacking Show. This is the show that connects you with opportunities, people, ideas to help you thrive and survive in the interesting times we all seem to be navigating at the moment. As always, we have interesting guests, but it's not my job to introduce guests. So first, let's welcome co-host Kathleen Beauvais from down the road in Waterloo, Ontario. How are you doing today, Kathleen? I'm doing great, Peter. Thank you for that intro. And thank you so much for tuning into our show. We so appreciate you and we love reading your comments. So please keep those coming. And if anyone is interested in being a guest on our show, please don't hesitate to reach out to either Peter or myself. And as Peter mentioned, we do have another special guest with us today. We have the great privilege of of welcoming Deborah Vick. Hello, Deborah. Welcome to the show. How are you? I am doing wonderful. Thank you. How are you today? Excellent. Thank you. So, so Deborah, you're a speaker coming to us actually from California, I should mention. You're the CEO of Victorious. It's a company that helps women uh, feel that are feeling marginalized pursue leadership roles. For our audience, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to set up the company Victorious? Thank you so much. First off, thank you both for having me here today. It's a great honor to be here. And so ultimately, Victorious doesn't just work with women. It works with people in general, with people with disabilities, and working with the empowerment of people with disabilities. But in terms of myself, I, as a speaker, I definitely work with women and helping women find their voice and develop those leadership roles through the power of their own abilities and finding that inner self and worth and ability to communicate these needs and skills. And a little bit about myself, uh, I've always had aspirations to be in politics and in law from a very early age, probably about 14, age 14 or so on. A few years prior to that, I was going to be a rabbi. Then it was be a lawyer and a politician. And in particular, I wanted to do work in the civil rights arena and really work in representation for people that did not have access to legal representation or equal access to education. That was a big part of where I was going in life. In terms of myself, I did work, again, early age. I think one of my very first political offices I interned in was a female legislator, which trickled down to me being involved in the National Women's Political Caucus and Suffolk County my senior in high school, just kind of ultimately creating uh, this platform and really what I thought was to be the roadmap to a career in politics. Well, technically I still have a career in politics, but a career in a political office. Mm-hmm. Kind of got sidetracked with my disabilities a little bit there. But I always came back to the voice element, and in part because my brother and I both were raised debating politics. We were raised debating at the t- kitchen table. My mom's a nurse, my dad's a teacher. We debated politics every day at the table. My brother's still involved with politics and will still be a political debate everywhere we go. I didn't realize that was different until college. I mean, when I went to college in 93, when I went to college, I didn't realize that most women didn't have the same voices at the table as their brothers or their fathers. And that was not considered, that was considered normal. That was, in my situation, was abnormal. And I didn't realize that. So I continued in the political arena, continued in the Bloomers office, student offices for student politics, as well as when I went to college and graduate school, I continued again working in 
with the Civil Rights Office, Attorney General's Office in Arizona, and then in California all the way through. So, and to this day, I'm still advocating for legal representation and most particularly right now, equitable access to medical care. Mm -hmm. But again, still in that political arena, trying to be the voice for some and helping others find their voice. Mm -hmm. Wow. (laughs) So quite quite a baptism in politics, right? (laughs) And debating. And I, I would just add that um, it's my observation. You, you say women were not expected and it was unusual for women to get involved in political debates. I, I believe a lot of men as youngsters grow up in households where politics is not debated. And uh, it takes them until they get to college or whatever uh, before they even start having any interest. And some never do, of course. Sport, sport is always predominant. <laughs> anyway, so, so tell us a little bit about Victoria's. Pardon? I was laughing because I'm the mother of two teenage boys. I have a 12 year old and a 16 year old. They debate quite a lot. Uh, But (laughs) I I was. I was fortunate to have uh, parents who also debated a lot, uh, not just politics, all sorts of things. So I was uh, exposed early on. So tell us a bit about Victorious. What services does Victorious provide? So we are still a uh, upcoming new, newly formed nonprofit foundation. Mm-hmm. We've started working very closely in the clubhouse arena and other spaces mm-hmm. of creating the social support network, in particular, uh, creating spaces where people who have disabilities or other challenges or caregivers or people with challenges mm-hmm. can come express a challenge and discuss possible ideas of ways to uh, problem solve it or advocate for oneself or find one's power in their story, right? Not just here, and and there's plenty of support groups and I believe in support groups and I know they definitely have their place, but after you've had some of that work and you're doing some of that inner work and you're doing whatever physical or cognitive or mental health work you might need to do, what next? Mm-hmm. And that's really where we're trying to fill in multiple gaps, working with both the education element for people within the disability community, as well as externally, right? Mm-hmm. Because how often I cannot count how many times I've heard people tell me they're not sure how to react and how to interact. So there will be an element where we will t- I'll talk about that in a minute, where my tagline comes from building with bridges. But for a minute, I want to step back into not only are we talking about the empowerment element, the mindset element, because mm-hmm. there is a significant element of one's mindset, whether you are a woman finding your voice, whether you're a person with disability, whether you are a parent of kids with disabilities, or whether you're parenting with disabilities, any one of those places, we need to find our voice again. We need to find our way to get comfortable again. I mean, most people don't believe this, but up until less than probably five months ago, I'd say I absolutely hated public speaking and I was not comfortable speaking and definitely was not comfortable in front of a camera, uh, which is in part why I was in this filter competition last, last year. But the other element is often people kind of more are marginalized people with different challenges in life into one road, route, road mm-hmm. or another and not Often enough, are we given the ability to figure out how can we live our best life with these conditions in this particular moment in time? Mm-hmm. And for me, you can see behind me, I have a whole huge crafting station. It's only a small stash. Yes, it's a 
big addiction slash hobby slash business. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> right? I mean, it's it's my it's a big part of my mental health practice for sure, because my mindset, especially uh, since more than 70% of my time is bedridden or in, you know, in a chair or recliner, I needed a way to channel my energy, which is what ultimately made me realize we're not supporting people enough. We're not mm-hmm. giving people enough elements to be able to contribute to whatever capabilities they have at that moment in time. And so for me, Victorious is teaching people, how do I live my best life right now? How do I enjoy my life right now? And how do we give people the skills they need to do that mm-hmm. at a price that they can afford? Right. Mm, very good. Just a quick one. You were talking about Clubhouse. I'm not very good on Clubhouse. I've recently started using Discord quite a lot and find it really good for closed community um, chats, right. <clears throat> communication. I find I was put off at first. I thought it was just for young people, nerds and geeks. And then, <laughs> <laughs> but as an old guy, I'm mean, using Discord quite a lot. And, and in the couple of communities I'm involved there, I, I enjoy it and find it very useful. So just a point. Kathleen, back to you. I have Discord as well. I oh, have good. I have Discord, WhatsApp, Telegram, Telegram, <laughs> Telegram yeah. I don't really use Snapchat, but I do have it. Do have Pinterest, Instagram, and Clubhouse. And wow, I have a whole bunch, a couple of other ones too. <laughs> I'm sure. Side chat. So, 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 Deborah, in the last several years, it appears that society is doing a lot more to accommodate people with disabilities. What is your opinion on that? Do we need to do more? Uh, absolutely, we need to do more. And my opinion is uh, yes and no. Mm-hmm. And yes, in, uh, that we were definitely during COVID. Now, the beginning of COVID, not so much. And then we began to pivot to this virtual communities and really expanding on these skills, which was great. But now people are rushing back into the office again, and they're starting to shut down a lot of these options for people. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say the yes and the no. Because we still have that element where I know a lot of people, teams are going back to the office or mm-hmm. and when they go back to the office, remote isn't going to be an option for them. Mm-hmm. Now I say yes, because my temple is still having remote services, right? So, you know, they are still continuing with something that they had not done pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. And as are some of my doctors, ability to give me sometimes tele- telecommunication appointment. So there's that yes and that no uh, dichotomy. But you know, I can tell you right now, there's a group that I do for the past few years, I've done virtually presentations for. And it's a it's a program that I, I, it's dear and dear to my heart, and I will go back up to the Bay Area to do it. It's teaching neurodivergent workshops for neuro teaching adult scout leaders how to work with people on the, that might have neurodivergencies and deescalating them. That's not virtual anymore. Mm-hmm. So last three years has been virtual. Now it's not virtual, which I get because it's also networking. So it's a yes and a no element. And in terms of that support, though, for the disabled people, I can tell you as an advocate, I am still struggling night and day for everything from dealing with insurance issues to getting coverage and my and the appointments and the systems that I need for that. So that's where I say that yes and that no. The other element too, which is near even closer to my heart, is the lack of part-time remote positions available to people. 
Mm-hmm. And that has been, I can tell you, a number one struggle in the disability community of people who receive benefits or people like myself who would not be able to work full time and not be able to find employment as such. Okay. That reminds me of something else we I really want to ask you about in a moment. But I got one for you. And and I believe there's a bias. And I if I'm honest, I'm biased myself in this way. And that is that society has more sympathy and empathy for visually disabled people than it does for people who are vis- or disabled with no external signs of such. So someone someone missing a leg obviously in a wheelchair that needs to be in a wheelchair um, blind, I believe gets uh, more accommodation by society than someone who looks completely able and just happens not to be able to walk too well and is in a wheelchair. Am I on the right track or, or, or am I? Just... Well, there are yes and no's in my, and this is my personal experience. Sure. And from that, what I hear people telling me, and I'm talking to both as speaking as a woman with a, many invisible disabilities mm-hmm. and many visible disabilities. Mm-hmm. But I came of age with invisible disabilities. So wow. I had my first knee injury at age 13. I was on crutches from age 13 on. I didn't have my first diagnosis until I was 24. Wow. And nobody knew what was wrong with me other than surgeries wouldn't work and everything was extremely hypermobile, dislocating and subluxing. And then it developed a uh, reflexive sympathetic dystrophy or now is known as chronic pain regional syndrome. Uh, and a whole plethora of other conditions. And so, yes, I do have a wheelchair and full leg braces and a service dog and oxygen. Uh, and for those who can't, can't quite see, but I'm actually doing IV fluids right now. So I often go out with my IV fluids. So I have a whole lot of things going on. But for my personal medical conditions, my most debilitating is my chronic fatigue, my chronic weakness, my okay. immune system, my uh, the shutdown of my whole system that... I frequently will lose consciousness as we were talking before with a dysonomy awareness month. But I will tell you as a chronic pain warrior, the cognitive challenges and the chronic pain issues, that is so much harder to deal with in without even having a have visual symptoms, right? So somebody else who doesn't have visual symptoms has an even harder time explaining that. Mm-hmm. Or PETA, that, that's, you know, I was telling my dog in the background over here, he and I trained at a place called Operation Freedom Paws. Right. And the majority of people they work with there, they're up in the Bay Area, are veterans with PTSD, mm-hmm. most of which do not have a visible disability. Sure. Sure. And sure. yet they are just as much disabled, if not more, than I am. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they are more disabled than I am, depending on how severe someone's PTSD is and whether they have mechanisms like a service dog, uh, which is, you know, it can be very, very challenging. So I would say yes for that. But I'll also say there becomes a tipping point when you look so disabled that people don't know what to say to you that what they avoid you. Yep. And then, yep. and I've been in a power chair, and I've been, I've had my neck, I have a neck brace and a full back brace and a full leg braces, and I've had that too. So I've I've had that spectrum, and mm-hmm. it's a unique experience to be able to see all those different areas, and even the and the. Uh, smaller relations between my master's program and my law school and my undergraduate. And even within those programs, how different professors and teachers would react to the different types mm-hmm. of disabilities. Wow. 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 Even more, even more complex than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. I've got to 
put in a disclaimer here that I have some association with people with disabilities. Um, I lived in Africa most of my life, and my mother was, uh, at the age of mid-50s, was shot in a terrorist ambush and lost the use of her right leg. Uh, it wasn't okay. amputated, but it was completely useless, so she had to learn to walk on crutches. She yeah. was... Oh, yes. My internet playing around again. Yes, yes, Probably just mine. Yeah. momentarily. Uh, <laughs> so I, I sort of experienced that, what she had to do through that. So, yeah, anyway, um, Kathleen, back to you. So, so, Deborah, do you have a message for employers um, to devise more opportunities for disabled people? To reach out. There, um, as you know, we were talking about being on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. There are a large number of advocates, uh, small business owners, small programs working with people with disabilities on LinkedIn. There are a ton of us on there, and that's a great place to put information out. I happen to be part of another organization that also does the same thing. We've been working with, and we just held a last week, last month, sorry, <laughs> getting my days mixed up here. Last month, the end of September, we just held a panel of five different disabled uh, entrepreneurs sharing their stories of employing people with disabilities and also how do we bridge that gap? First part of it comes out through that dialogue. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a to refer to my 3D effect, which I've used in some of the speeches, but the last part of it, the D, the third D is dialogue. And then change doesn't happen without dialogue. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is to create that dialogue. Excellent. Thank you. You mentioned just now um, part-time employment opportunities, part-time remote employment opportunities. I've heard from people who are receiving government benefits for disability that they're reluctant to do something that will earn them a little bit of money because it will reduce their overall income. Now, I'm not sure if that's entirely correct, but what they're saying is if I can't get a full-time job... To an extent. So are are you able to work with uh, local regional or in your case state and federal government to try and address that so that if someone shows the initiative and starts earning for themselves instead of taking out all their benefits just reduce it proportionately there are some programs to there to that extent as well okay. uh, in the united states is typically about nine hundred dollars to nine hundred ninety nine dollars that you can earn a month before you will lose what small benefits you might be receiving okay. Uh, but you can also put certain amount of funds each each month away towards to be used only for medical expenses. So the specific called ABLE accounts. Wow. So there are programs such as that as well. There's also it's been advocating for many 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 years now for to be changes in the social security disability mm-hmm. programs to encourage not discourage yeah. the employment because I don't receive SSDI, but. When I did, and I did receive it for a few years, and and I had to even postpone getting married to my husband, who my husband is my college sweetheart. We've been together for over 27 years, but we had to postpone getting married for quite some time to make sure I had the insurance that I needed to survive. Mm-hmm. And it would have been way beyond our means to done it privately because of my pre-existing medical conditions and being high up. My husband likes to say high upkeep. I am I have a very high cost to keep me alive. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, so there are some programs that are designed for that. But I can tell you, I went on SSDI in, in 95 and I started advocating then because I was shocked at how 
little one could make before mm-hmm. losing what small amount I was receiving, which mm-hmm. half of which was like to student loans. And the ridiculous thing was that, you know, in my case, no, I can't drive, right? I haven't had a license mm-hmm. in seven years. I don't ever think I will ever get one again. So just the cost to get me from point A to point B mm-hmm. would be so extensive and not to include the cost of wear and tear on my body yeah. because there is that, if you haven't heard of it before, the spoon theory of uh, it's an algorithm used to represent the amount of energy use to function is so high, it almost discourages it, mm-hmm. which is not what people want. And nobody wants to sit around not feeling up. Okay, I can't say Most people don't want to sit around feeling like they can't do anything. Right. Mm-hmm. From everybody that I've encountered, it could be my circle of friends, but from everybody that I've encountered, we all want to do something. We all want to feel of some yeah. value somewhere, yeah. someplace, right? And if not through a project, then through volunteerism, something Topically, to help. Yeah. Right. right. Sure, sure. So <laughs> tell me about, tell us, not me, tell our audience about your public speaking. You only started five months ago and you got in front of a camera recently. So, how did that come about and what do you do? Where do you speak? Who do you speak to? So I have well, I have been speaking for years, but I lost confidence in speaking. Mm-hmm. With the onset of the myasthenia, which I was diagnosed just over six years ago, I, but the onset was likely four years prior to that. And the onset of the myasthenia on top of my other conditions really creates what I like to refer to as my squirrel brain because of some guy over there gets distracted by squirrels. That would be my dog. Uh, <laughs> the squirrel brain, the, you know, the hamster wheel. So that would throw me off. Not being able to communicate the way that I used to be able to communicate. I know I slur more. I know I can't open my mouth the same way. And to other people, it might not seem noticeable. To me, it's noticeable. To me, it's noticeable. To my family, it's noticeable. But I'm funnier, though, because I can laugh at all the craziness that I like to refer to as a comedy series waiting to happen. Uh, but the reality is, a year ago, a friend of mine, uh, Sarah Tompkins, she's a, she's served, she served as Miss Wheelchair uh, Washington State last year, USA last year, this past year, and she's an ambassador with the Miss Wheelchair USA Foundation this year. She encouraged me to participate in the program, to apply to represent the state of California, uh, I did. So I did serve as Miss Wheelchair California USA 2022, and I did go to the national competition. Wow. And it was, yeah, so it was the first time I could ever consider myself beautiful was at the competition, or technically the night of the final, <laughs> the final of the competition. But I did it not because of the competition, but because I grew up not feeling pretty. I grew up feeling lesser than uh, oh, I didn't mean to get emotional about it, but I definitely didn't feel like that. And so I didn't want other young women to feel that way. Mm-hmm. And the Miss Wheelchair USA competition really honors women with disabilities that are also giving back to their community. Uh, for me, I'm a, besides a mom and a parent and a scout leader and doing pre-COVID was running after school steam programs. But I've also spent most of my life volunteering into some different variety of or slew of different service programs. But I never felt okay about me as a woman. So this year, I decided to step way beyond any comfort zone of mine. Yeah. I never would have like I'm a tomboy, so I have mostly t-shirts and boys' cow clothing. <laughs> 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 oh, 
was really funny. I literally had a wheel into the store and go, uh, I don't know what it means just like a girl of 2022, but y'all need to help me. <laughs> I don't think my husband and kids are going to help. So, <laughs> Well, I, I just want to say, Deborah, uh, we hadn't met you before. Uh, you came on camera with us just a little while ago to do this interview. And I have to tell you, my initial reaction when I saw you is, what a beauty. So Yes. Yeah. What I thought. So, did, so did I, but I wasn't going to speak first in case I was accused of being a, a nasty old man or something like that. Uh, but. but Deborah, you've written a book. Tell us about your book. So I wrote a chapter in the book, a chapter in the book, Absolute Will, and I'm actually working on a chapter in the, in the uh, second part of that, second part two to that book called mm-hmm. Absolute Vision. And the chapter that I wrote about was actually titled Why I'm Not President of the United States. It was actually my dream to run for president of the United States for much of my teenage through adulthood years-ish. Well, I'm still an adult, but into the past probably last decade, realizing that's not going to happen now. But that was my dream. And the the story was actually, it was very more emotional than I expected it to be. First off, prior to this, I've written maybe two or three things in the first person. Everything else, you know, it's very legal, analytical. That's what you do in the, my uh, academic career. So it was very different writing the first person. Mm-hmm. But it was very cathartic as well. Uh, I started out uh, expressing what it was like to wake up the morning that I was diagnosed with MS. I mean, my MS, my senior gravis. And what it was, what I saw, my face was shut down. I couldn't, I looked like I had a stroke overnight. I could, it was three months before I went to renewal ceremony. So yes, in my brain, I'm going, I have my dress. I have my dance. What? I can't my face looking like this I mean it was just I was so upset you know thinking oh my gosh like we had 10 years to have a wedding system and everything was like in line and then you know and the faith wasn't the issue I couldn't move I couldn't breathe I was worried you know all of these things pile on top of it and you know it was my senior gravis and it was an interesting diagnosis process but it took longer than it should have uh, fortunately, we did get me onto a treatment system, so I was able to do our adaptive dance that we had been working really hard on for the past previous few months to be able to do at our wedding. Uh, I did have to have a couple of breaks for that, but it is on YouTube, by the way. Mm. But it, it, I see this is my squirrel brain. I just lost track of where I was going. That's okay. Like that. That's okay. Um, I just lost track of where I was going. See, sometimes well, that happens. We were, we were talking about the chapter in your book, how you wanted to be, for years you'd oh, wanted to be so the president. Right. Thank you. So in that book, up until I wrote that chapter, in my mind, it was always the life I was supposed to have. Mm-hmm. You know, and by the time I finished, now mind you, I wrote this book through a, this chapter through a lot of tears. Uh, by the end of it, still a lot of tears. Couldn't read it for like a month past it. But by the end of it, I was able to say the life I thought I was supposed to have instead of the life I was supposed to have. So mm-hmm. there was that big element mm-hmm. of that difference because it wasn't just my journey. This, this is why this chapter is emotional. Because it wasn't just my journey. It was the journey for my kids, especially my older son, who was 11 at the time, and what he went through with my diagnosis. Because in my kids' eyes, they both still feel this way. How could anything like this be allowed to continue, in their eyes, continue happening to me when I'm doing so much for so many other people? Mm-hmm. I see it differently. 
I realize I got a big mouth and, or, I mean, not a big mouth. I like to talk. (laughs) (laughs) I like to talk and I can communicate things in a unique way that hopefully expresses our stories and opens people's eyes to some of these challenges that we have. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can laugh about being in the hospital six times the past year, maybe seven times. I don't know how many times. I mean, it's we like to say I have a frequent flyer card to the hospital, and I've come up with a new term of hospitalization. But that's the reality, right? That's my reality. That's my kids' reality. That's what we live with. And ultimately, this chapter is about my finding peace with my journey mm-hmm. and finding that voice, finding you know uh, what it was like when I wheeled up. I wheeled up to the microphone and the lights were on us. And I say yes, because Peter was right there with me. And I keep on pointing with my thumb, but you can't see it because the camera's situated. But Peter was right there with me, still on the show, by the way. He was a star. Uh, and the reality was, though, when I was that night, the finals of the last two nights that were televised on pay-per-view, I felt comfortable. I, of course, I was scared, but I felt I belonged. I felt beautiful. I felt I had my voice. I gave one of my best speeches without crutch words. <laughs> and <laughs> it was an experience. And then last week or the week before, I was really trying to struggle to write something. And I couldn't just, just I don't know, I, I guess because I had a couple of really rough weeks, rough setbacks, which we all do, but especially those of us with these chronic conditions, I had some really big rough set, setbacks. And I was listening to a woman in one of the rooms that I was in, moderating it, and she was commenting of all that she couldn't, right? And mm. I immediately, and she said, but, but, but how do I find my mindset if I have chronic pain or if I have these illnesses? And I don't think I got to the microphone fast enough to tell her how she could. And no sooner had I realized that the whole room poured into her, that was me six months ago, like almost the exact same words, wow. right? And. I was like, oh, wow, I come a long way in six months. So uh, that's my long-winded way of getting to that answer. But, you know, those were those those two different dichotomies in that one year. Part mm. of it, stepping beyond my comfort zone, you know, to getting in front of the camera. And honestly, pre-COVID, I was always behind the camera because I've been taking photos since I was 13. So <laughs> being on this side of the camera is really weird. And seeing myself on your screen, it's even weirder. But Okay, yeah. it's all good because that's how we grow, right? Right. Absolutely. Well, we're running low on time, Peter. I but I know you have your burning. I have my burning question. I've got to. I've got to sure. ask Deborah my burning question. We've done around two hundred of these shows, and mostly they are successful people in business life, like yourself, achieving all sorts of things. And the the burning question is always, is there a single characteristic mindset or trait that sets successful people apart from those that are not successful or merely average? But I want to change it around a little bit for you and say, in your mind, with your experience, not just your personal experience, but all the people you've helped and all the people you've come into contact with, disabled and able-bodied, whatever, is, is there one characteristic mindset or trait that you can see that differentiates those who come to terms with what life throws at them, be it good or bad, and those that remain victims? Wow, one word. She's going to make me think of that one. Because a couple that come to my mind. I'm going to say thank you. Well, give, us more than, give us more than one. But, um, just the first one that comes to my mind is perseverance and determination. Sure. I mean, okay. Those those are common. I think 
yeah. probably many people say those words. But the other thing that comes to my mind is gratitude and kindness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I like to say I look at the world through a lens, lens of gratitude and trying to find gratitude from wherever I'm at, whether that's at home or in the hospital, because I have found gratitude from the hospital as well. And you know, I have to. I mean, I have oh, yeah. a life full of challenges, but every two weeks I get infusion treatments, plasma-based therapy, that's from donors. I mean, I am receiving things from people because I am alive because of others' donations. So very grateful. Grateful for all those that keep me uh, alive and functioning. As my husband likes to say, it takes a whole lot of people to keep me alive. <laughs> um, but kindness too, because the reality is, is that without kindness and appreciation, the world doesn't go around, right? Mm-hmm. Kindness begets kindness. And I know that's a cliche statement, but it's true. How often have you, I challenge you to walk down a street and keep on smiling and saying hello to people and somebody's not going to, and, and somebody's going to say hello back to you. Sure. And I guarantee you, you're going to make it somebody's day along your way, you know? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm going to say both, the, all of those are words that, of course, now I'm about to like sit here <laughs> reciting the, the 12 votes of the Scout Law. As I'm realizing some of these words, I'm saying, oh, courage, brave enough. But the the reality is, I mean, these, it's common decency. It's being compassionate and mm-hmm. being empathetic and being open to hearing another person's story and journey. All of those matter. Absolutely. And nobody has that competition. Absolutely. Sorry. I know we're over time. Kathleen's going to shut me down in a moment because I'm always guilty of running away. I talk too much. I just got to tell you that what you're saying comes up a lot and in a strictly business sense too. What doesn't come up is getting a degree, getting an MBA, having a good job, making lots of money. Never features. It's always the sort of things you're talking about. The other big one is focus and curiosity and constant learning. Mm -hmm. But you've got most of them. What you told, so thank you. Appreciate that very much. Kathleen, back to you. Well, well, Deborah, how do people contact you? Yes. So I am able to be found on most social media platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, most my personal my personal handle on most platforms is forward rolling, F O R W A R D R O L L I N G, and my <laughs> nonprofit is Victorious V I C K T O R I O U S underscore N-P-O-N as a non-profit, P-profit. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Uh, It's been an absolute honor to have you on our show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Excellent. And thank you all again for tuning into our show. And until next time, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Goodbye.